Okay, an icebreaker question for those of you who are married. What is something creative that you did back in the days when you were dating to win the heart of your future spouse? Okay, anything come to mind? Something really creative you did to win the heart of your future spouse. Now, Sue and I met when we were both college students, and we started dating, and one day I decided to buy her a dozen roses. Nothing super creative about that. Uh, Only the florist was several miles away, and I had no transportation. I was just a poor college student. I had no way to get there, so I borrowed a motorcycle from a friend of mine. Not stopping to think that, uh, first of all, I didn't have a motorcycle license at the time, and... uh, Secondly, I had no idea how, how I was going to get a bouquet of roses home on a motorcycle. So sure enough, I'm on my way back to campus from the florist. I get pulled over by a cop who sees that I'm obviously not in control of my vehicle. And fortunately, he didn't ask me for the license because immediately what I did, I, I started to tell him about this girl whose heart I was trying to win with these roses. And he shook his head and he said, okay, just get back to campus right away and never carry roses on a motorcycle again. And I've never done that to this day. Never, never done it again. Now, the adventure didn't stop there. When I got back to campus, I took those roses and I stuck them in a bush next to the sidewalk about two blocks from Sue's dorm. And then that night, I asked her to go on a walk with me. And as we're walking along, I reach into the bush. Fortunately, I remembered the right bush, and no one had stolen my roses, and I pull them out and give them to her. Ah, tough group here. Okay. So what is something creative that you did Back in the day when you were dating to win the heart of your future spouse. Now, I have a follow-up question to that. If you're married, what is something you did this past week to keep the heart of your spouse? Hmm. And this is my point. Many many of us put all sorts of time and, and effort and thought into launching that love relationship, but currently we're putting little thought, little energy, little creative, you know, pizzazz into growing in that love relationship. And so we're going we're gonna to focus on that today. We're going to focus on, on what it means to pursue relational growth. We're in the fourth week of a five-part marriage series called I Do, Five Commitments to Make Love Last. Now, let me do a quick review of, of the commitments. Week one, Sue and I spoke to single people, and we said, you know, this lasting love relationship begins when you pick the right person, okay, the right person to partner with for life. So we talked about what it means to partner with a Christ follower, someone following Jesus, and then week two of the series, Eric and Rachel Rogers spoke to you about putting Christ first in that relationship, centering the marriage around spiritual values. And then last week, Sue and I spoke to you about confession and forgiveness, how you need to practice that on a daily basis, how when the marriage breaks down and there are going to be breakdowns along the way, how to get things back on the right path. Today, our topic is pursue relational growth. Uh, Dr. Paul Tripp, who's written a wonderful book on marriage, in fact, I would say it's, it's probably, of all the, the books on marriage, I've read maybe one of the top two or three books called What Did You Expect? And in that book, he says, relational growth in a marriage depends on little things, little things that you do every day. In, in fact, he, 
he proposes an approach which he calls the, 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 the little things approach to marriage. Look at what he writes. He says, God has crafted a life for us that does not careen from huge consequential moment to huge consequential moment. No, the character quality of our life is forged in little moments. Every day we lay little bricks on the foundation of what our life will be. So view yourself as a marital mason. That is really a great word picture for married folks. You are a marital mason. And, and what Dr. Tripp is telling you to do is, as a marital mason, put good bricks, add good bricks to the foundation of your marriage every day. Now, now if you lay those good bricks daily, your marriage is going to grow. If you fail to lay good bricks, now please understand, I'm not just saying if you lay bad bricks, I'm saying if you fail to lay good bricks because of disinterest or because of busyness, in your life or because of conflict or because of self-centeredness, if you fail to lay good bricks, your marriage will not only stop growing, your marriage will begin to deteriorate. So what Sue and I want to do, do for you today is give you four kinds of bricks to be adding day after day after day to your marriage foundation. If you haven't taken your outline out yet, I encourage you to do so so that you can jot down these four bricks. If you write nothing else down, at least write down these four bricks. And again, if you're single, okay, these are relational bricks. They're not just marriage bricks. So they can, they can be applied to any significant relationship you have. Great. Well, brick number one is this, listening. Brick number one is listening. I want to give you a scripture to go with this brick. It's Proverbs 20, verse 5. As you know, Proverbs is wisdom literature, and there's so much in Proverbs about keeping our mouths shut and our ears open. Listen to this verse. Put a star by it, Proverbs 25. It says, the purposes of a man's heart are deep waters, but a man of understanding draws them out. The purposes of a man's heart are deep waters. I love that word picture. Each one of us is like a deep well. And a man or a woman of understanding, a wise person, will draw that out. Our job is to draw out each other. And how do you do that? By being good listeners. Are you a good listener? Better yet, would your spouse say that you are a good listener? So often we're good listeners with others and not so much with each other in our, in our marriages. I want to illustrate the importance of careful listening. Okay, you may have heard this before. A man was sitting on the edge of the bed watching his wife who was looking at herself in the mirror. Since her birthday was not far off, he asked her what she would like for her big day. She replied, I'd like to be six again. So on the morning of her birthday, he got up early and made her a big pancake breakfast. Then he took her to Great America all day, where they rode every ride in the park. They stuffed themselves with huge quantities of junk food. By late afternoon, they were ready to move on. They stopped at McDonald's for dinner, where this guy ordered his wife a Happy Meal with extra fries and a chocolate shake. They were then off to an evening movie, complete with popcorn, large Coke, and a box of Raisinets. When they finally got home, they dropped into bed, exhausted. The husband turned to his wife with a big smile on his face and lovingly asked, Well, honey, what was it like being six again? 
Her eyes popped wide open and she exclaimed, I meant my dress size. <laughs> the guy was well-intentioned. He was not a careful listener. I want to give you two simple buckets that you can use if you want to become a better listener. Remember, we're deep wells and we draw each other out. Here's bucket number one, and it is used by effective counselors everywhere. It's called reflective statements. Reflective statements. That means that you repeat back to your spouse what you think you heard them say. You, you change the wording, you're not mimicking like a parrot. But if your spouse says, oh, I had a hard day at work, you say, so work was pretty tough today? They say, I loved that movie. You say, you really enjoyed yourself, didn't you? They say, I've got a million emails. You say, wow, your mailbox is overflowing and you're feeling anxious about that. You know, it's important just to repeat back what you heard them say. Now, some of you are saying, what is the point of that? My spouse is going to think there's an echo in the room. <laughs> no, actually, your spouse is going to think you're listening or trying to. And when you do reflective listening, you aren't fixing. You aren't making statements that you're trying to fix your spouse. You know, wives especially, they don't want to be fixed. They want to be heard. And so it's a bonus to do reflective statements back to what you hear them say. I like what one marriage counselor and author said about fixing. He said, I have never been able to fix my spouse. The only living creature I've ever been able to fix is my dog. <laughs> so the first listening bucket is reflective statements. The second listening bucket is great questions. Great questions. So how good are you at coming up with great questions that really draw your spouse out? Well, it's a hard job to do. Not many of us are good at it. And that's why Jim and I constantly resort to this book. We call it the 1001 Questions book. Seriously, we pull this out at the dinner table. We take it with us on dates. We've given it out to scores of people as wedding gifts. Our adult kids use it in their marriages. So one of you takes the book and, and says, call out a number between 1 and 1,001. And so they give you a number. You read that question. It may be a great question. It may be a lame question. But it somehow generates a conversation. And then you pass the book back and forth. On it goes. And the more you use a bucket like this book, the better you become at crafting your own questions. Good listeners are good question askers. That's a skill we all need to learn. Okay, so Sue's talking to you about this brick of listening, and she's giving you a couple of buckets to use to draw out other people who are like deep wells. But you need the right environment in which to use these buckets. You say, what do you mean right environment? Let me give you a couple of wrong environments, okay? Busyness and noisiness. If your life is surrounded with busyness and noisiness, you'll never use the bucket. You can have all the listening skills. You'll just never have the opportunity to put them into practice. Okay, so you got to cut back. Let's start with busyness. Got to cut back on busyness. You got to tame your schedule, friends. There's got to be an opportunity during the week when you have a date night, when you can sit down across a table from each other and just talk. 
Sue and I have discovered instead of a, a date night, a date breakfast works better for us. Uh, first, because we're fresher in the mornings, but uh, secondly, because it's cheaper. Uh, <laughs> than going out to dinner, okay? But y- you do a date night together, or you take a walk together, and some of you are saying, oh, it's the time of the year when it's getting colder. But you're Midwesterners, doggone it. You don't care about the cold. You just bundle up and you take the pooch for the walk and you take, that's not your spouse, you take your spouse, <laughs> you take your spouse with you and you talk, you talk about the day. This is where you do the reflective statements. This is where you ask the great questions. You got to cut into the busyness or you'll never have an opportunity to put this stuff into practice. You, you, you clean up the kitchen side by side. One washes, the other dries. Don't look at that as, as a, you know some horrible sentence, look at it as an opportunity to cut back from busyness and listen to each other. Okay, same thing with noisiness. Got to cut back on the noisiness. Now, Sue told you a joke, so I'm going to tell you one of my own. It's a joke about a Catholic priest who loved football. Okay, you Protestants, I hope you get this. But this guy, as you would expect, college football-wise, was a Notre Dame fan. And he was chagrined to learn that he'd been scheduled to listen in the confession booth on Saturday, the big game. So he figures he's got, he's got a cover. He puts in one earbud. So he's going to listen to the game with, with one ear, and he's going to listen to confessions with the other. And everything's cool. You know, it's all working out until this couple walks in. The, the husband steps into the confession booth, comes out a few minutes later, and just has a puzzled look on his face. And his wife says, well, you know, what, what's wrong? What did the priest say? You know, what's your penance? The guy says, I got 15 yards for unnecessary roughness. <laughs> okay, okay some, some of you think that's lame. I think I heard it from a Catholic. <laughs> but you'll tell it this week. You will. All right? See, many of us do that same thing in our marriages. We listen with one ear while we're listening to something with the other. Doesn't work. Turn off the TV, whether it's the ball game or dancing with the stars. Turn off the TV, look at each other, and do the reflective statements and practice asking good questions. You get it? Good. Okay, let me give you a second brick. Serving. And I want you to turn to Galatians 5. By the way, each one of the four scriptures we're going to give you today, they are really uh, winners. They're worth memorizing. Serving is a second kind of brick to uh, add daily to our marriage foundation if you're a a marital mason. Uh, By the way, please note as we go through these four bricks, every one of them are ING words. And we did that on purpose because we want to convey a sense that these are ongoing activities. This is not something you do once in a great while. It's not something you do once and then stop doing. It's something you do again and again and again. Listening is the first brick. The second brick here is serving. Let me read to you verse 13 of Galatians 5. The Apostle Paul writes, You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge your sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. Now, let me give you a little background, a little context to this verse because it will help you understand it and apply it. Paul is writing to a group of Christ followers who, for the most part, had come from a religious background. And so prior to trusting Christ, they were used to trying to earn their salvation, earn God's good favor by keeping God's laws, by doing good deeds. So Paul arrives on the scene with the gospel, the good news. He says, no, it doesn't work that way. 
None of us could ever do enough good deeds to earn God's favor, God's salvation. It comes through trusting Christ. He purchased forgiveness. He purchased salvation for us when he died upon the cross. And so if you put your hope, your trust in him, you'll be able to receive as a gift salvation. Now, unfortunately, there's good news. Some of the Galatian believers took it and they moved to the opposite extreme. They, they began saying to themselves, well, shoot, if this is a free gift, if there's nothing I have to do for it, then, then I'll take the gift and I'll live for myself. Now, what would Paul say to that? Well, what he says to that is Galatians 5.13. He says, no, you're not getting it. It is a free gift. God does give it to you to set you free from your sins, but the goal is not to live a self-centered life. God has set you free so that you can serve each other. Now, here's, here's a startling truth that I, I want all you married folks to chew on for a moment. God puts you in your marriage to serve your spouse. God puts you in your marriage to serve your spouse. Repeat after me. God put me in my marriage to serve my spouse. Now, we're going to do it again because I want to make sure the other campuses are participating as well. Okay, let's put the whole thing together. Just say it with me. Here we go. God put me in my marriage to serve my spouse. So any, any marriage counselor will tell you, I, I better say it this way, any Christian marriage counselor will tell you that one of the worst enemies of a healthy marriage is selfishness. One of the worst enemies of a healthy marriage is selfishness, where the husband or, or maybe it's the wife, or perhaps it, it's both, are taking, taking, taking from the other, but not giving, 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 giving. You, you've probably heard the saying before, that person's like a tick on a dog. You know, that's like some marriages. One, one of the spouses is the tick, sucking the life, taking all he or she can get from, from the spouse. In some cases, it's two ticks, no dog. It wasn't that good, but <laughs> by, by the way, just a side note here, when Sue and I are in that mood, we will, we will use that expression with each other. You know, it kind of loosens things up. When, when we sense that we're both in that needy, taking from each other mode, uh, one of us will say, two ticks, no dog. <laughs> yeah, that was funny, but uh, <laughs> let me tell you what the solution to selfishness is. It's serving. The solution to selfishness is serving. You just consciously, deliberately, spontaneously, through the course of each day, you look for opportunities to do something for your spouse. Let, let, let me ask you right now, what would help your spouse out today? Okay, what would relieve their stress if they're under the gun? What would take something off their plate? What, what would, if you did it, what would greatly encourage them? do it. Let me throw in a couple disclaimers to this point. The first disclaimer is you don't do an act of serving for your spouse because they deserve it. You don't do an act of serving your spouse because they deserve it. Remember what Jim said ago, a minute ago about the theme of Galatians? The theme of Galatians is that God offers us salvation freely out of his grace. It's a gift. We don't earn it. 
And see, we're called on to display that same kind of grace that God has given us to others. We offer them service, not as something they have to earn, but as a gift. I don't cook Jim his favorite meal because he took my car for an oil change. You know, I don't pick up his shirts at the dry cleaner because he ran an errand for me. That's what they would call a, a quid pro quo relationship, an even exchange, where you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. No, this kind of approach leads to serious scorekeeping. And so I would say yesterday, let's see, I served Jim three, at least three ways. And as far as I could tell, he didn't serve me at all. So today I'm coasting until he catches up, and, or at least gets two out of three before I'm going to serve him again. No, God has called me to serve Jim. Period. End of sentence. Whether he deserves it or not. Second disclaimer is you don't do an act of serving for your spouse in order to get recognized or thanked or congratulated by doing that, for doing that. If I am waiting for Jim to hire a brass band or at least bring me a bundle of flowers from Jewel, you know, to celebrate something I've done to serve him, then I'm not serving from a pure motive. I'm not saying that wouldn't be nice, you know, or, or to even hear the words, honey, I really appreciate that you did that for me. I love that. Minimally chocolates, you know, something. But... That's not why I'm doing it, and I don't want to become resentful if I don't hear that thanks and appreciation. I want to get my heart right with God and do it as to the Lord. Now, that being said, how good are you at recognizing and thanking your spouse when they have served you? You know, if that's what you would like to hear more often from them, try saying it yourself more frequently. So here's my big chance. Honey, are you listening? <laughs> I really appreciate you, Jim. Thank you for serving me when you clean up the kitchen after dinner, when you switch loads of laundry and fold those clothes, when you talk to my dad on the phone, when you vacuum up the dog hair, even though it is your dog. <laughs> Thank you for serving me when you make the bed each morning, when you read books aloud with me at night, when you empty the dishwasher, when you make me coffee and you find me in the house and bring me a cup, and when you pick up the dog poo in the backyard, <laughs> even though it is your dog. <laughs> Thank you for serving me. Here's brick number three. Brick number three is celebrating. Celebrating. This is the third kind of brick we need to daily, daily, daily add to our marriage foundation. Now, when I'm talking about celebrating, I'm talking about celebrating the ways in which your spouse is different from you. Different from you. Turn to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, and while you're turning, let me give you the context to this passage because Paul is explaining that each one of us that belongs to Christ's body, the church, has a unique gift. We're all wired differently. It's just like the various parts of the human body, the eye, the ear, the hand, the feet. Let's read 1 Corinthians 12, verses 17 and following say, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? 
If the whole body were an ear, where would that sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And so we can see the Apostle Paul is making the point that each part is needed in the body. Dr. Paul Tripp, author of What Did You Expect, says that one of the reasons husbands and wives get impatient and irritated with each other is because they want their spouse to be their clone, just like them. They don't want to have to deal with the difficult task of molding two very different lives into one. So what would the Apostle Paul say to that? Well, based on 1 Corinthians 12, Paul would say, are you kidding me? You're complaining about your spouse's differences? You should be celebrating those differences. Think about this. If you and your spouse had the same viewpoint on everything, same taste, same relating style, same strengths, same weaknesses, one of you is unnecessary. <laughs> Seriously. Seriously, when we're at odds with our spouse about something, we've got to stop telling ourselves, I don't need this. When in fact, we do need this. We do need the balance that a life partner gives us that comes from a totally different perspective. We do need this. Let me give you a very practical application to this point. When Jim and I were raising our three children, we often remarked, you know what, once our kids are grown, we're not going to have anything to argue about because most of our conflicts seem to be around our differing parenting styles. Can you identify with this? Okay, so Jim would challenge and I would praise. Jim would throw our kids in the deep end. I would ease them into the shallow end. You know, Jim would be more directive in his communication style. I would be more questioning and quizzing. Jim would lie on the floor and roughhouse and somebody always got hurt. <laughs> and I would play it safe and curl up with them with a book. Jim would take us on adventures and go, go, go. And I would raise the white flag and say, could, could we just chill? Jim would set out to solve their problems, and I might be more likely to hear out their emotions. Jim would change the locks when they grew up and left home. <laughs> you know, set healthy boundaries, and I might have them move in and raise their kids under our roof. Both needed, both necessary. Eh, change the locks and the garage code. <laughs> Sue has been um, telling you about this brick of celebrating. We're not to resent our spouse's differences, but to celebrate them. And again, this is a brick that you add many times in the course of a day, as often as you have opportunity to do so. Celebrating, you, you do this out loud as well as to yourself. When I say out loud, I mean you, you demonstrate, you speak of your appreciation to your spouse for their differences. 
and you speak of them to other people as well. And this will keep you from complaining about their differences to others because, friends, this is our default position, is it not? I mean, this week you're going to be at work standing around the water cooler or you're going to be changing clothes uh, in the locker room at the health club and the subject of marriage is going to come up. And, and the easiest thing to do is to begin dissing your spouse's differences. And, and so you'll say something like, oh, yeah, you know, he's so tight when it comes to money. Or, or you'll say, yeah, it takes her an hour in the morning just to get ready. Or his idea of a good time is, you know, to spend the evening quietly at home. Or, or she, you know, she gardens, 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 gardens. That's all she does. Okay. Are, are these all negatives or are they just differences? And, and maybe these differences have a positive side to them. Maybe they help balance us out in some ways. Why not make it a rule from this point forward, when you speak out loud about your spouse to somebody else, you're only going to bring up their admirable characteristics. Okay, You're only going to celebrate their differences, not complain about them. And, and then you, you practice the same thing when you speak to yourself about your spouse. We do this all the time. Let, let me give you an example of this. First, I'm, I'm going to give you a quote from a great book by a fellow named Dr. John Gottman. Gottman is not, not a Christ follower, but he's written a, a great best-selling book on marriage called The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. Look at this killer quote from Gottman. By simply reminding yourself, okay, this is self-talk, by simply reminding yourself of your spouse's positive qualities, even as you grapple with each other's flaws, you can prevent a happy marriage from deteriorating. The simple reason is that fondness and admiration are antidotes for contempt. See, sometimes we're led to be contemptuous toward our spouse's differences. If you maintain a sense of respect for your spouse, you're less likely to act disgusted with him or her when you disagree. Now, let me give you a personal illustration where I put this principle here into practice recently. Sue and I have mentioned that we just finished a kitchen remodeling project. Now, throughout this project, my basic aim, uh, you know, I've revolved around money, how much money we're going to spend on this thing. And Sue's greatest concern has been aesthetics and flow, okay? <laughs> aesthetics meaning how the place looks when it's done, and flow meaning, hey, we have large groups of people in our house all the time and don't have that big a house, so let's make sure that they're able to flow through the house. So th these two different perspectives, you could tell where this is going, right? They, they came to a collision the day we ordered our refrigerator. Now, I started the whole deal by going to the library, looking at consumer reports, finding out the best models of refrigerator out there, going to several different, different appliance shops, taking Sue with me, and we decided, we decided on a certain make of refrigerator, and I said, I'll call you back in like a week and we'll ink the deal. Okay, so about a week later, I'm going to call him and I say to Sue, by the way, I'm going to call and give the guy the green light on the refrigerator. And she says, you know, I'd really like a cabinet depth refrigerator. Now, do you know what a cabinet depth refrigerator is? It's a refrigerator the depth of a cabinet. You're good. Okay, so, so it doesn't stick out as far, meaning aesthetically it's more pleasing and the flow is, you see where this is going? The flow is better. So my immediate response to Sue, because I'm thinking money, I say, no, no. You know, we, we decided on this, this other refrigerator. And, and by the way, you need to know this. 
you know, there's, there's less room because it doesn't stick out as far. There's less room, and it costs more. I mean, the model we were looking at, the cabinet depth was like $1,000 more. I had said to the sales guy when he showed it to me, let me get this straight. I get less refrigerator for more money? <laughs> well, that makes sense to me. <laughs> so I, I told Sue no. In fact, you know, being a pastor and having a great vocabulary, a spiritual vocabulary, I was even able to say that would be immoral. Less refrigerator, more money. What are you thinking, woman? So I go to call the guy, and I pause and I pray, because we pray about, you know, we pray about everything. So I pray, and God seems to say to my spirit, you know, your wife's got a different perspective, but you ought to at least value the perspective. Show that you value it. So I get the guy on the phone, and I say, okay, I think we want to order the, the refrigerator we told you about a week ago, but first, I just want to know, tell me some more about cabinet depth refrigerators. And I told him, I don't want to spend any more money for less refrigerator. So he goes to work for me, and long story short, a couple of days later, calls me back. The bottom line, friend, is that we got a cabinet depth refrigerator that has as much room in that has as much room in it as our previous refrigerator did for about the same amount of money that we were going to spend, and it looks great, and the flow is wonderful. <laughs> yeah. So, the point is, it's the self-talk that, that we need to correct. When your spouse comes at you with, with differences, don't grumble over the differences. Don't immediately assume that you're right and she or he must be wrong. Celebrate the differences. Respect them. Honor them. Okay, brick number four, trusting. And I want you to go with me to one last passage, Colossians chapter 3. We want to give you one last kind of brick to add to your marriage foundation. This is the brick of trusting. Now, we talked about trusting the first week of the series. When we were laying out for you single people what to look for, in a prospective spouse, you know, we said trustworthiness is a key ingredient. And I said trust is based upon another T word. Trust is based upon what? Call it out if you know. Trust is based upon? Truth. Good. It wasn't enthusiastic, but it was okay. A few of you got trust is based upon truth. So I want to take married couples to that same principle. In fact, the very same scripture we looked at several weeks ago, it's Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, where Paul says, Do not lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Paul says, let me give you two good reasons to be truthful people. Reason number one, dishonesty, lying, it's an old habit that supposedly you put aside. When you put your trust in Jesus and ask him to forgive your sins and become your Savior and Lord, this is old stuff. Second good reason to become a truthful person is God is making you into a brand new man or woman. And he's fashioning you into his likeness. And one of God's characteristics is truth. He's the God of truth. So two good reasons to be a truthful person. Let me give you a third reason to be a truthful person. Paul doesn't mention this exactly in Colossians 3, but it's a biblical principle. Truthful people can be trusted by others. 
truthful people can be trusted by others. So if you want to add trusting bricks to your marriage foundation, then you need to tell your spouse the truth and live the truth when your spouse is not looking. Now let me give you some examples of behaviors that are not rooted in truth, and so they undermine trust. For example, you say you're going to be somewhere at a certain time, and you're consistently a half hour late. You spend too much money, and then you sneak those purchases into the house and kind of hide the receipt. It's not truthful. Watching porn on the TV in your hotel room while you're on a business trip, even though no one else is looking, it's not truthful. Putting events on the family calendar without your spouse's input and later saying, don't you remember we talked about that? Hmm. Hanging out with your buds when your spouse doesn't know you're hanging out with your buds. Okay, refusing to recognize your drinking problem or any addictive behavior. It's not living truthfully. Carrying on an inappropriate relationship via texting or Facebook. Okay, I don't need to continue. Behaviors like these are deceitful and they undermine trust. Are you adding trusting bricks to that foundation of your marriage or are you taking them away? I want to mention a trusting brick that Jim has added to our marriage foundation because it may be something that a lot of you husbands and just guys in general ought to consider. I know that men in our culture are constantly bombarded with sexual temptation, especially in the form of pornography. Jim has not only put a filter on his PC, but on his cell phone as well. A good friend of ours is a sexual addictions counselor, and he says that porn on a cell phone is like crack cocaine. It is so available, it is so addicting, and so destructive. Jim's got a filter on his phone, and it notifies a buddy anytime he goes to a questionable site. And you know who Jim's buddy is? Who gets those notices? Me. That's what I call putting a trusting brick in place. And so as we, we close today's message, may, maybe you're saying to yourself, well, what if I do this? What if I pursue relational growth? What if daily I want to add the right bricks to my marital foundation? You know, what if I work at adding listening bricks and serving bricks, celebrating differences bricks, trusting bricks? What if I do all that and my spouse doesn't do squat? What then? May I just remind us as we close that we're putting our hope not in our partner, but in the Lord. What we do, we do for him because of what Christ has done for us. And may I also suggest that you don't walk that road alone. You join a community group and you get others that will encourage you in this commitment to pursue relational growth. What I'd like to do is turn things over to our campus pastors at our other campuses and then close in prayer here at St. Charles. So here in St. Charles, would you stand together with me? And I want to remind you that you have a great opportunity every week at Christ's Community to have somebody pray for you. This is a house of prayer. So let the folks on the far side of the railings, they'll be there by the time we say amen, they'll be in place, or Sue and I will be standing up front available for prayer. Come and talk to us. We'd love to pray for you, whether it's a marriage-related thing or anything going on in your life. That, that would profit from some prayer. And I'm going to ask Sue to join me for a closing prayer, and she'll pray then, then I'll pray. Let's bow together.
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truth of your word. And I want to especially pray for those that have a hurting heart today and need a word of hope. Because you are a God of hope. You redeem everything. And in the name of Jesus, we do ask that you would encourage and spur us on to, to love and good deeds in our marriages. And God, I, I want to pray that we would be those marital masons that we described today that we would consciously, deliberately be doing things to add bricks to our marriages, the foundation of our marriages. Uh, Father, I, I pray that we would also be practicing the other things we learned throughout the, uh, th this series, God, especially the confession and forgiveness stuff that we touched upon last week, where there are still differences that have been unresolved, where there are conflicts, God, that, that need to be fixed, where there's grace that needs to be applied. I pray that you draw us to that. And Father, for those of us who are trying to put this stuff into practice, and the truth is we, we don't yet have Jesus on the inside because we've not put our trust in him, and so the Spirit of God has not, to come, not yet come to live inside, I pray that even today we'd surrender our lives to you and so that we would have the power of your Spirit to put this stuff into practice. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen.